0: Hey guys, yeah, I am Jordan. Uh, It is it is really really wonderful to be with you all. Um, I feel like I know you, like I've been hearing your names for a few years now. Like for a few years now, I've been hearing about George, right? (laughs) And then I finally get to meet George, and um, you know all these other people, and it's so good to be with you. Um, And yeah, I am from Austin, Texas. Originally from Memphis, and yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've learned you don't talk about Memphis around her. It's all <laughs> the night's over. Um, and uh, so I'm a pastor there, um, And but more importantly, I am Matt's friend. And I, I want to say, what he said about me was very kind, but I want to say some things about Matt really quickly, and I just want to say that I cannot, I know a lot of campus ministers. I really do. I know a lot. But I promise you that there's no better campus minister than Matt Patrick. There really isn't. I know that to be true because Matt is an amazing friend. Matt's the type of friend who knows how to be with you when you're really happy and know how to be with you when you're going through hell. He's the type of person who can laugh with you and the person who can make you cry or laugh and then cry. He's the type of person who will drink a beer with you. Then again, he'll walk through hell with you. He's an amazing person, he's amazing friends, amazing campus minister, so you are very lucky. Um, The first thing I want to say is, I don't know how all of you walk into the room tonight, okay? Like, I don't know why all of you are here. Uh, I know some of you are here because there's, like, a cute girl here, right? I know others of you are here because there's a cute boy here. Some of you are here because, like, you have questions about Christianity, and you want to know if it's really true, right? You want to know if it's really true. Others of you believe that it's true, but you don't always experience it as true. So, again, I, I just want to say that I know you all walk into the room in very different places, and I welcome that. I know Matt welcomes that as well. Okay? All right. So, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but a very large percentage of the Earth's surface is covered by water, right? 71% of the Earth's surface is covered by water. Do you know how much water there is in the world? If you take, a, if you take a, cu- a cubic mile, which is one mile by one mile, a cubic mile, there are 332 million cubic miles of water on our planet. That is a ton of water. In fact, to this day, you know, different projections, they say that anywhere from 80 to 90% of the ocean floor is still undiscovered. We've never been down there. We don't know what's there. There's so much water. There's so much unknown. And if you read the Bible, sometimes it feels as if the Bible is also 71% water. Like if you read the Bible, there's water everywhere in the Bible. In the very beginning in Genesis 1, before creation, it says God was hovering over the waters In Exodus, Moses leads Egypt through the Red Sea. In Kings, Elijah leads Elisha through the Jordan River. In Numbers, Moses strikes a rock and water flows out. And especially in the Gospels, especially in the stories about Jesus, there's water everywhere. It says if Jesus is always getting in a boat, he's crossing a lake, he's walking on water, he's calming a storm, he's turning water into wine. He's meeting the Samaritan woman at a well. He calls himself the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. There's water everywhere. As Tertullian, an early church father, said, Jesus is never without water. And it's true. If you read the Gospels, it's true. But what does water mean? What does the water mean? Is it just water? Well, of course it's not just water. So in the Bible, sometimes water is calm and it's still. But sometimes water is chaotic and it's choppy. And therefore, sometimes water represents things like being clean cleansed or purified. But other times water seems to signify judgment. There's water everywhere. And so this weekend, here's what we're going to do, okay? In our four times together. We're going to look at passages in the Gospels involving Jesus and water. And there are a ton to choose from, but we're just going to do four. So we're going to do passages in the Gospels that involve Jesus and water. Jesus among the waters. That's going to be our series, okay? So let me pray for us, then I'll read the passage. Well, I'll read the passage, then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew 3, If you want to also pull out your fake Bibles on your phone, you're also welcome to do that. If you can withstand the temptation to not get on social media, whatever it might be. But whether it's a real Bible, virtual Bible, go to Matthew 3. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. It's the first gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew's first. So Matthew 3. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 17. There we go. Someone is there. I don't know about the rest of you, but at least one person in this room has found it. Um, Okay. Let me read for us. Let me read for us. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophets Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, "'We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the judgment.' Excuse me, I throw into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us. We are tired of listening to ourselves, and we would rather listen to you. So please speak, in your Son's name. Amen. So in 2002, the movie came out, The Born Identity, and it's a movie that begins with water. If you remember, at the very beginning of this movie, there are these fishermen out on the Mediterranean Sea when they look out overboard, and there's a body floating on the waters. And the body, of course, belongs to Matt Damon. And Matt Damon, he looks good in The Born Identity, right? Right. Like Matt Damon looks a little bit like Matt Patrick since he went on this running kick. Like he is cut, he's looking good. But here's the problem: Matt Damon also—he's in bad shape. However good he might look on the outside, he's in bad shape in the inside. He's unconscious. He has two gunshot wounds in his back. And he doesn't remember where he's been, why he has the wounds. He has no idea what is going on. He's suffering from dissociative amnesia, which is a word you pre-med students can tell me about later. And, he, and, it, and this amnesia, it's made, him forget his, it's made him forget everything. It's made him forget who he is. He doesn't remember his past. He doesn't even remember his name. He remembers nothing. And I have to, I have to imagine that some of you, when you walk in here tonight, actually feel that way. You're four weeks into the semester, four or five weeks in, And yet you're already in the middle of the grind, right? You're in this grind of every day waking up and studying week after week, tests, papers, formals, semi-formals, all the rest. And it makes you forget who you are. It makes you forget who you are. You become all of these things, all your deadlines, all your assignments, and it's disorienting. And you forget who you are. And one of the wonderful things about spaces and weekends like this is you get to rest one But you also get to regain your bearings, and you get to remember who you are. And tonight, I want us to get our bearings. I want us to get our bearings about who we are as Christians. And to do that, we're going to look at baptism. We're going to look at the waters of baptism. Two points. John's baptism, and then Jesus' baptism. Okay? John's baptism, Jesus' baptism. First John's baptism. Well, if you go to the opening verses of our passage, you'll meet this man, John the Baptist. And you immediately see that John the Baptist is not a normal person. Okay? Look at verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Okay? Like, if you're in a fraternity, let's be honest, if John the Baptist shows up at your Rush event, he is not getting a bid, all right? Like, John the Baptist is showing up, he's wearing, like, cargo shorts, he's wearing, like, off-brand tennis shoes, like, he kind of smells weird, he eats weird. John the Baptist is not normal. He's not normal. But what if, what if that's actually intentional, Which is to say, what if through his clothes and through his diet, John is trying to signal to us that something has gone horribly wrong? That something is not right with us? Flannery O'Connor is a famous Catholic novelist from Georgia. She's famous for writing these stories that are unbelievably strange and bizarre. And so she'll write these stories about serial killers. She'll write stories about Bible salesmen who come into people's houses and steal their prosthetic legs. Strange stuff. But with Flannery O'Connor, there's a method to her madness, and she always knows what she's doing. Because here's what she writes about what it means to be a Christian novelist. She says, The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions, which are repugnant to him. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And to do so, he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to this hostile audience. To those who are hard of hearing, you have to shout. And for the almost blind, you must draw large and startling figures." What what O'Connor is saying to us is that after a while in our world, what should seem strange and off and not right to us begins to actually seem normal. That we have grown blind, we have grown deaf, and that two people who are deaf like us, you have to shout. And two people like us who are almost blind, you have to draw in large and startling figures. And friends, John the Baptist is a large and startling figure, he is strange. He shouts. But he does so because he's trying to tell us that something is wrong. Well, this past week, we really have reached kind of this new level of concern about the coronavirus, right? Um, you know, the stock market, which is something that, like, your dad cares about, uh, the stock market has plummeted, like, more than it has in, like, 10 years, right? And, you know, I was on a plane flying over here, and you see more and more people sort of wearing masks, even though the masks don't work, okay, by the way, if you didn't know that. Um, like, I went to Walmart the other day. They were out-of-hand sanitizer. And in many ways, let's be honest, right, like, the thought of being exposed to the coronavirus is very frightening, and people have died, right? But if John the Baptist were here tonight, what he would tell you is you have already been exposed, and you have already been infected. That ever since Adam and Eve, all of us have been exposed, and all of us have been infected by a virus called sin. And that virus has spread to all people. It's spread to all people, like an alien invasion, like aliens invading Earth, like, like Hitler invading Europe. Our bodies are now occupied territory. It's not just us and God. There's something else, a third party at work in the world. And sin, it's one of the hardest things for us to see in ourselves. But it's one of the easiest things to see in other people. And so for as a pastor, it is so easy to come up with illustrations for sin. Okay, so I'm just going to give you one. I could give you a million, but here's one. In the 1980s, in rural Iowa there were these two young ladies named Sonia and Cindy. And Sonia and Cindy were both beautiful. This is a true story. They were both beautiful. Uh, They were popular. They were well-liked. And they were friends, but they were also rivals because they were very similar. They are both very beautiful, right? And uh, Cindy was voted the harvest queen of the county, but Sonia was voted homecoming queen of the high school. Sonia and Cindy, they're friends, but they're rivals. And one of the reasons they're rivals is because they both love this boy named Jim. But you can only love one person. And so Jim chooses Sonia. In fact, after a while, after a few years, Jim and Sonia were engaged to be married, but they never got married. Because one night, Cindy went and found Sonia and strangled her to death. Here's the point. We are not alone in this world. And when we do horrible things, it is very clear that something else is acting upon us. That sin very much is something that we do and that we are responsible for. But it's also something that is done through us. We have a virus. We have an infection. Something is not right with us. And that is what John the Baptist is wanting us to see. Through his appearance, through his strangeness, he's wanting to see his exterior is our interior. It's off. Something is not right. So, the first thing we have to do tonight, before we get to the good news, is we have to see the bad news. And we have to do what the people do in verses 5 and 6. Look at it. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what do the people do? They go out to John. They face this strange man. They meet him by the waters, and they confess their sins. So sin is the first part of John's message. If you want to know who you are, it does have to start with sin. It has to start with sin. But that's only the first part of John's message. Because he also has a second part. The second part of his message is to change. It's to change. In other words, John doesn't just tell us that things are off. But he also tells us that we've got to get things right. And we've got to get them right fast. Look at verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And then again in verse 8, we see this word repent, where he says bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent. John was a preacher with one sermon. John had one sermon, and his one sermon was repent. So, what does this word repent mean? Well, when we think of repentance, we usually think of saying, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. But in the Bible, to repent is way more than saying "I'm sorry." In the Bible, to repent is to actually do a one eighty. It is to turn. It is to be walking in one direction and then begin walking in another direction. Repentance is a complete orientation of your life. It's a reorientation of your thought life, in which your mi- in your mind, your one thought more and more is God. And in your heart, your greatest love is more and more God. And with your feet and your hands, your greatest concern is increasingly to do the will of God. Anyone can say, I'm sorry. Anyone can fake it. Anyone can change their behavior and be a better person for a while. But repentance is something that goes down deep, right? We see this in the language John uses in verse 8 where he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying the sign that you've actually repented in your life is when the tree changes. Because you can't fake fruit. Fruitfulness involves good soil. It involves good root system. It involves having enough water. It involves going down deep. This is true repentance. This is true change. So that's what repentance is. But why should we do it? Why should we actually repent? And what John would say is you must repent because the king is coming. You must repent because the king is coming. The other day, uh, Matt told me that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden both came to Wofford, right? Right? And, uh, regardless of what you think about these two men, I'm sure that there was like a certain buzz in Spartanburg and on campus because of the arrival of these two men, right? Like students, I'm sure some students were really excited and Wofford as a university, I guarantee was really trying to put their best foot forward because this was their chance, right? This is their chance for two presidential candidates, one of whom could be president to be there and to be on their campus. And what John is saying, or excuse me, yeah, what John is saying to us here in Mark 1 is, listen, someone is about to come. Someone is coming, and you need to prepare. You need to do to your hearts what Wofford did to its campus. You need to make your hearts fit for a king. You need to change. And so I'm going to bring you to the waters, I'm going to bring you to the Jordan River because there are things in your life that need to drown. There are things in your life that need to die. There are things in your life that need to wash away. There are things in your life that need to change. And friends, change and repentance. It's not a one-time thing. As Matt, I know, has quoted before you before, Martin Luther. Martin Luther says, all of life is repentance. All of life is running in the wrong direction and trying to turn around and run in the right one. It's two steps forward and one step back, and two steps forward and one step back. It's not one time. All of life is repentance. But here's the problem. It's really hard to repent. So some of you probably love you know, Will Ferrell or Adam Sandler or Ben Stiller, some of these comedians have sort of been famous in the 90s and 2000s. But one of the precursors to all of these men, to all of these comedians, was this man named Bob Newhart. Do any of you know who Bob Newhart is? No one knows Bob Newhart. All right, Bob Newhart was a very famous comedian in the 80s, okay? And uh, one of Bob Newhart's most famous comedy sketches, in one of those sketches, he plays a therapist. Bob Newhart plays a therapist, Okay? And in the skit, this woman named Catherine comes to see Bob in his office. And Catherine has major issues, all right? So she sits down in her chair, and she tells Bob, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. And I just started thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Thinking about it makes my life terrible. I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator in a house or anything that's boxy. And Bob responds to her, so what you're saying, Catherine, is that you're claustrophobic. And Catherine says, yes. So Bob says, all right, Catherine, let's go. I'm going to say two words to you, and I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. And then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. Are you ready? Here they are. Here are the two words. Stop it s-t-o-p new word i-t stop it okay and and Catherine is like undone and she's like scrambling for like a piece of paper to like write down these words and like the joke right is that bob newhart is this horrible therapist right like but but here's actually like what's true about the skit the truth of it is that all of us have these things in our life that we desperately know we need to stop And we can't do it. The joke is that when someone looks at you and says, stop it, you can't just go and stop. That's not how it works. All of you know you have things you need to change. All of you know you have things you need to stop. I mean, you have these sin patterns that you can't stop. Like you have a past that haunts you. Things that you've done that fill you with regret. You have these fears and you have these anxieties that cripple you and they keep you up at night. They're the first things you think about in the morning. And then to make matters worse, like you have the voice of Bob Newhart in your head telling you, stop it. Stop it. Be different. Change. And you can't. And you feel stuck. You feel stuck in your sin. You feel stuck in your depression, your anxiety. You feel stuck in your shame. And you can't get out of it. And if that's how you feel, this passage is for you. Because God comes in this passage, and he gets us unstuck. Okay? With that, point to Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. Well, turning back to the text, Martin Luther, again, he went so far to say that Jesus' baptism in this passage, which I guarantee you to some of you seems kind of boring, is actually one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Luther went so far as to say that all of the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus' baptism, and all the New Testament looks back to Jesus' baptism. That this passage is, in many ways, the centerpiece of the whole Bible. And I'm going to try and convince you why it is so important for the next few minutes, okay? Because here's what I want you to do as we read these verses again I want you to put yourself in the place of Jesus. I want you to put yourself in the place of Jesus. And I want you to imagine that his baptism is actually your baptism. That everything that happens to Jesus in this passage has actually happened to you. That when you became a Christian and when you were united to Jesus in baptism, everything true of him became true of you. Okay? So let's look at these verses again. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Jesus arrives at the banks of the Jordan, at the banks of the river, and he tells John to baptize him. And we see in verse 14 that John is very confused. John is confused. He says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? But in verse 15, Jesus says we have to do this, and here's why. He says, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness. See, for us, righteousness is kind of a bad word. Because it makes us think of self-righteous people, right? People who are self-righteous. People who think they're better than us. People who are holier than thou. But in Matthew, righteousness is actually a beautiful word. Because to be righteous is to do God's will to obey his commands, it is to be who you are made to be. It's a beautiful thing. And yet, as we've already seen tonight, you and I are not righteous. You and I are not righteous. No matter how much we want to obey, how much we want to stop it, how much we want to repent and to change and to turn around, we can't do it on our own. But Jesus can. The story of the Gospels is that from his birth until his death, Christ never sinned. He never sinned. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. He fulfilled all righteousness. And it begins right here. Here, at his baptism, Jesus is rewriting our stories. He is doing everything we cannot do. Jesus is rewriting our story. And he's rewriting our story and he's giving us his righteousness. As one commentator says, At his baptism, Jesus is publicly declaring his deliberate intention to seek to live a life of righteousness in every single particular. To live a life that seeks in every possible way, first of all now by baptism, to do the entire will of God. So friends, if you want to understand what the Christian gospel is, you have to look at baptism. And if you want to understand really what the cross is, You have to look at Jesus' baptism. Because in the same way Jesus takes on a baptism for sinners, a baptism that John said, you don't need this, in the same way he also took on a cross meant for sinners, a cross he did not deserve. The one who never sinned identifies with us in our sin. And then there's the death part. In the same way Christ is here plunged and drowned beneath the waters of the Jordan at his baptism, he is plunged beneath the waters of death on the cross. And so baptism shows us the cross. Baptism is the cross. Jesus drowning so that we might be raised. Jesus dying so that we might live. Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Because left to ourselves, you and I don't have a shot. Okay? So the very first thing that Jesus does here as he rewrites our stories is he gives us his righteousness. He gives us a new righteousness. But at your baptism, you didn't just receive Jesus's righteousness. You also received a new power within you. You received a new power. Which is to say that at your baptism, Jesus didn't just forgive you of your sins, he gave you the power to live in a new and beautiful and righteous way. And we see this in verse 11, where John begins to spell out for us the essential difference between him and Jesus. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we see this is exactly what happens in verse 16. The Spirit arrives. It says, And when Jesus would, was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. See, friends, John's baptism is fine. It's a baptism of repentance. John comes to us, and he says, Stop and be different, repent and change. You're a sinner. And that's all fine and good. But John does not give us the ability or the power to actually change. John's baptism is not enough. But at Jesus' baptism, we actually get the power to change. We get the power to actually stop it. And to actually repent and actually return to God and live a righteous life. As the theologian F.D. Bruner says, John can do a great deal. He can preach God's law of repentance. He can prepare the way. He can baptize. He can receive confession. But John cannot forgive sins or give the Holy Spirit. John cannot remove our main problem or impart our main resource, which is the Spirit. So John's baptism is a lot like God's law and his rules. There's nothing wrong with them. They're good. They remind us all God has done for us and all the ways we've fallen short. But Jesus' baptism is the gospel is the good news that you are forgiven for falling short, and you've finally been given the power to get unstuck and to change. The third thing we get as Jesus rewrites our stories here at his baptism is we not only get a new righteousness and a new power in our bones, but we also get a new identity. You also get a new identity. And we see this in verse 17. Listen to the words that God the Father the one who created the universe, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, who said, let there be a world, and there was a world, who said, let there be trees, and there were trees, that God calls out from the heavens and speaks over Jesus. You are my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. As others have pointed out, God the Father, the God of the universe, he only speaks publicly two times in the Gospels. He does it right here at Jesus' baptism. He does it one more time at Jesus' transfiguration. And both times, the only two times, God says the same exact thing. He looks down at Jesus and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And friends, in your salvation and in your baptism, the God of the universe looks down at you and says the exact same thing. He looks down at you and says, you are my son and I'm pleased with you. You're my daughter and you are lovely. That that is who you are. You're a son and you're a daughter of the king. You are not sin. You are not your past. You are not stop it. You are not your grades. You are not a Wofford student. You are not a Kappa Sig. You are not a Chi Omega, wherever it might be. You are a son and you are a daughter of the king. That is who you are. And God, he doesn't just put up with you. He's actually pleased with you. He actually delights in you. He thinks that this world business would not have been complete without you. So from now on, here's what I want you to do. okay? College is a disorienting time. It's very disorienting. You're like Matt Damon, and you're thrown out to the waters, and you don't know who you are or where you've come from. Okay? And you get lost in the grind. You get lost in the grind of tests and assignments and quizzes and projects and resume building and finding internships, formal, semi-formals, date parties. And when that happens, when you forget who you are, you have to look back to the waters. You have to look back to the baptism. When you feel dead, when you feel stuck, when you feel like you're drowning, look back to your baptism. Look back to Jesus' baptism. Look back to the place where everything that happens to him happens to you, where you get his righteousness, where you get his power, and you get his identity. Your story is water. You have been cleansed, you have been forgiven, and you have been washed of all your sins. Okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin our expiration tonight and as we meet you at the waters, we do pray that you would remind us who we are. That there's something deeply wrong with us. That things are not right in our heart and in our world. But we can change. We can change by the grace and power of your gospel. And you have changed us in Christ. You've forgiven us and you've washed us. We thank you for that in your son's name. Amen.